AI doesn't have to be evil to destroy humanity. If AI has a goal and humanity just happens to be in the way, it will destroy humanity as a matter of course without even thinking about it. No hard feelings. It's just like if we're building a road and an anthill happens to be in the way, we don't hate ants. We're just building a road. And so goodbye anthill. That, my friends, is a very ominous, ominous thing for Elon Musk to say. Elon Musk might be the most powerful man in the tech world today. Might be. Might be. Okay? And with that, when he says things like that, quote, it scares you. It scares you because you assume coming in that he's a person with intimate knowledge of the situation. And because he has that knowledge, and because he thinks that AI has the capability to destroy you, it scares you. It instills fear. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the state of the universe. Okay? And artificial intelligence is becoming maybe the most talked about thing in the entire tech world. Okay? But what isn't talked about enough is the actual algorithms that go beyond the AI, that lie underneath the hood. We all talk about artificial intelligence, but how do we teach a machine, a computer, to actually learn on its own? Here's another Elon Musk clip that I think is incredibly important to listen and to understand what he's saying. With each search, we train it to be better. Sometimes we type in the search and it tells us the answer before you have finished asking the question. You know, who is the president of Kazakhstan? And it'll just tell you. You don't have to go to the Kazakhstan national website to find out. Didn't used to be able to do that. He's right. You didn't used to be able to do that. So what has changed between now and 10 years ago? Why is Google so optimized now? Why is YouTube so optimized now? Why is it that you only need to type in one word? One word. If you type, if you go on YouTube and you type in the state, one of the search criteria, one of the things that will be recommended to you is the state of the universe. It will fill it in for you. Okay? What if you go to iTunes and you type in the state? My podcast will be recommended to you in the drop-down search. Okay? What happens if you're watching other science podcasts on iTunes and you scroll down? There's a criteria at the bottom, and it will say, Users also listen to, or, or, iTunes recommends based on your listening criteria. If you go on Netflix, it will recommend you videos. If you're on YouTube, it will recommend you videos. You might notice that you get targeted advertisements. So you're on Facebook, and all of a sudden it's telling you, to go out and look at Toyota Tacomas. And oddly enough, you were just talking about Toyota Tacomas yesterday. How does that work? That is an ever-improving algorithm. And what lies underneath that algorithm is something that isn't talked about enough, and it's called machine learning, and it is the act of teaching the machine to learn on its own. Okay? This, my friends, is a computational technique that is in such demand that if you go on LinkedIn right now, you will find that for a starting salary in the field of machine learning and teaching machines, computers, to learn on their own, you can start out making around $140,000 a year, and there is almost 10 
thousand open positions. They cannot fill them all because the skills that are needed to do it simply are not possessed by enough people. Now, that begs the question, how did this thing get so powerful? And what does it mean for the future of machines, computers? What does it mean? And that's why today in the podcast, I got the great Dr. Culp, Dr. Chris Culp, okay? And Dr. Chris Culp was one of the people that in my own life that I knew personally that I could see him make the transition into doing physics. His expertise, his expertise on paper is in nonlinear dyna non dynamics and chaos theory, but that made the switch into machine learning, into using machines to solve scientific problems, okay? Now, that is important because I bring him on today and we talk about how powerful this is. And there's something even more ominous, okay? Because in order to do machine learning well, in order to teach machines to learn on their own, just like human beings, they need to learn from something, okay? They need input to learn from. And what does that mean? Well, that has everything to do with your data, with your data. The person listening to this right now, if you have a Facebook, if you have a Twitter, if you have Google, if you use Google, if you use Netflix, it, most of your banking companies, they all sell your data. And listen to Mark Zuckerberg explain this business practice. Congresswoman, we are, have made and are continuing to make changes to reduce the amount of no, data. Are you willing to change your business model? in the interest of protecting individual privacy. Congresswoman, I'm not sure what that means. In that case, the Congresswoman was asking Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, will you change your business model? In other words, will you stop selling personal data for the benefit of the person using the platform? And his answer was, I don't understand the question. But of course he understands the question. His real answer was no. And the reason his answer is no is because that is the future. The future is that you, listening to this, are the product. And you and your data and everything you do on the platforms that you use is being sold to other people. And no one that I know personally understands the world of machine learning, how machines can learn, and this idea of big data better than Dr. Chris Culp. Dr. Chris Culp is a professor of physics at Lycoming College. He is, I mentioned, an expert in nonlinear dynamics and chaos theory. He's transitioning into machine learning. And he comes on and he talks to us. How is machine learning used? What ways do you see machine learning around you every day? What ways are computers using your data to learn? Okay? And what does that mean about the future of computers and the future of your data? Okay? Throughout the interview, we talk about how much your data is sold for. How much data does Facebook and Google have on you? What ways around you in the world are computers learning based off of what you give them, based off of you using them, okay? And how do you recognize this in the world around you, in the apps you use, in the places you go, in the cars you drive, in everything, okay? And so with that being said, people, thank you for listening. Support the Patreon. Support the PayPal. Go on my website to find those links. Please do it, okay? The podcast takes money to make and i appreciate your input okay i appreciate you giving me some money back all right you think i make money i don't make money you think i make money no no this is what my life is like hey brendan you got a bill due hey brendan guess what another one hey brendan do you have a bill due 
Yes, I have a bill due. Oh, two days have passed. Another one. Oh, two more days have passed. Another one. Oh, two more days have passed. Another one. And before I know it, all the bills are due. All the bills are due. And so how do we compensate for that? By you donating to the show. Okay? And if you don't donate to the show, well then, that's okay too. I hope you keep listening forever and ever and ever. Also, submit your questions. Do you have questions? Listen, people, I have been receiving questions I want you guys to know. If you're listening and you say, Brendan, I submitted a question, you didn't answer the question yet. Here's the thing. There are some questions that I will answer in one of my solo shows coming up. I'm going to incorporate some Q&A into those. But many of the questions you guys send me, I use those as fuel, as an idea. I say, okay, maybe I won't answer the question directly. But what I'll do is I'll get an expert on the topic on the show. And I'll try to make a whole podcast focused around the question that you ask. Okay, so while it might not seem like, Brandon, you're not answering the question, I say, wait two months and see what the guests come on, and your question will be answered in depth, in an hour and a half, in complete, 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 complete depth, as deep as you can go, 12 feet deep. Remember when you were a pool? A pool? No, you don't remember when you were a pool, you want to know why? Because you weren't a pool. What I meant to say was, you remember when you were a kid, and you went in the deep end, and the deep end was 13 feet deep maybe 14 feet deep maybe 12 feet deep and you would try to hold yourself underwater as long as you could and you can only do it for 30 seconds what's crazy is that people are alive today that can stay underwater for like three minutes straight nuts insanity i can stay underwater for five seconds if i take a drink too long i will die and that's the life i live do i choose to live that life no I don't choose to live that life, but that's the life I live. That's the life the universe has given me. The universe has given me an inability to breathe or not breathe for longer than 4.2 seconds. It's just how it is. Listen, some people have legs, some people don't have ears. All right, we're all given different gifts and ailments. It's the it's the world we occupy. But anyway, thank you for listening to this podcast. Hope you enjoy the episode. If you have any questions, comments, whatever, submit them on the YouTube. Let me know how you thought. Let me know what you think about AI. Is it going to take over the world? Is machine learning going to ruin you? Are you fearful for your data being sold? Because it's being sold. All right. There's a cool calculator that I'll put a link to where you can calculate how much your data is worth. Guess what mine's worth? 50 cents. You could buy everything about me, everything about me for 50 cents. And you could probably buy everything about you for about the same. And that's just how it goes. All right. So thank you, people. Appreciate you listening. And we'll be back next week with another one. That's actually a lie. We'll be back later this week with another one. And next week with another one. Another one. Another one. Another one. Another one. Welcome back to the show. Episode 57 this is going to be. Okay. Wow. I, I was what? episode one, wasn't I? Yes, you were episode one. You were the first ever. And I appreciate that a ton because in order to get the ball rolling, so to speak, like start, there's so many podcasts now. There's so many people trying to create these. And it's funny to look at like the drop off. It's like 15 episodes is like rock bottom. Most people quit at around 15, 20 episodes. Um, but it's really hard to get good guests. 
and people to actually speak with you in that range of like 1 to 15. Because like professionals realize, I don't want to waste my time on this thing where five people are going to listen and you know, no one's going to actually have any engagement and it's just kind of a waste of my time. I don't get anything out of it. That's what a lot of people think. Um, but so people like you helped me in the beginning to get the ball rolling. And then when I invite new people on, I could say, but look, Chris Culp did it. He's a, he's an expert in, in this world, in this field, and you're an expert. In this. And I use that ball to roll faster. It's like a snowball effect down the hill, down the hill. And I appreciate you being numero uno, um, because well, it, it helped a lot. That's funny. I, well, one, uh, I thank you for having me back. And it's an honor because you've had like some uh, top flight scientists on your show um, since I was on it. So the fact that you come back to me and say, hey, would you like to uh, be on my show again after you've had like Nobel Prize winners? Mm-hmm. I was rather flattered that you asked me back. Yeah, we had Ray Weiss, Dr. Ray. That was yep. cool. Um, I think Dr. Kip Thorne is still in the we're, we're still working with him. He's a tough guy to nail down. He's a very busy, 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 busy man. But yeah, we have tons of, of you know, very, very, very prestigious guests coming. Um, unfortunately, the more prestigious, like the longer you have to wait. You'll reach out sure. to them in August and they can't record until next December. So, you know, whatever. But anyway, that's not why. Yeah, and I'm available at a moment's notice. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if I ever need like a, if my guest ever drops for a week, I could just reach out. Sure. I mean, I'm probably not as easy as Nate, but, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh. Nate's got, <laughs> Nate's gotten hard now. Nate's oh, gotten, has he? Yeah. 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 I try to do one episode a month with Nate and he, now he's, he's be going big league on me. He never wants oh. to, he's like, oh, I got NASA. I work, I got to work. I got nine to five, whatever. You know, he's making stuff up just so he, I don't think he actually does anything if I'm being honest. Um, but anyway, that's not the point. The point is you're here. Artificial intelligence has become like the maybe the biggest buzzword in all of science. Every week, I sit down. The first thing I do at the beginning of the day is I scour science websites and I find like what are the topics that people are interested in? What are the most viewed articles of the day? What are the things that are being written about? What are the new findings in the world? And every single day, there's always some artificial intelligence thing popping up. Now, artificial intelligence is like a big buzzword, right? But what's more interesting to me is actually what underlies a lot of artificial intelligence. How do you make computers actually learn and think like a human being and make inferences? And the way in which you do that, there's many ways you do it, but one of the popular ways you do that is something called machine learning. And machine learning um, has, I, I don't know many people that have begun working on it, but I'm starting to see a transition. I'm starting to see a transition of like a lot of academics I know that are saying, okay, let me put 25% of my time over here. Because all of a sudden, you have a ton of resources being devoted to this field. And you were someone who got on the boat really early. So can you describe to me, like, what was it? First off, what is machine learning? How can you explain that to someone? Um, other than me saying computers teaching themselves. I'm sure that's terrible. Um, and then simultaneously answer, what made you see, like, wow, this is the future. And I need to get on in on the ground floor on this thing. Oh, it's a good question as well. Why don't we first start with uh, sort of a definition of machine learning? You, you basically hit the nail on the head. Uh, it's essentially training a computer to solve a problem without specifically instructing it how to do so. 
Mm-hmm. And the way it does that is one way you can do that is, you know, you can provide it a bunch of examples for which the answer is already known. All right. Like this is a picture of a cat. Mm-hmm. This is a picture of a dog. Right. Yeah. And then using these algorithms, the computer can then learn how to identify what are the characteristics of cat pictures, what are the characteristics of dog pictures, and eventually be able to distinguish uh, a cat from a dog in a picture that it wasn't trained on. Right. So and then you can start feeding it, it like pictures of cats and dogs and it, it has suddenly built this this foundational understanding of what's a dog and what's a cat. Right. Okay. And if you think about it like um children and people like learn this way too, right? If you talk mm-hmm. to kids about their colors and you can say, you know, what color is that? And the kid goes, Oh, it's green. I'm like, no, no, that's that's blue. Yeah, so that's blue. And so the next time they see the color, they, they've seen this example and they learn to identify a pattern and they can next time say eventually, oh, you know, the sky is blue, for example. Uh, so, yeah, that's machine learning essentially in a nutshell. Now, the second half of the question, why did I get into it? Uh, happy accident. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I had a, a student, um, uh, Sean McCollum, who I think is now at J.P. Morgan Chase. And he was getting ready to um, enter his senior year. And the summer before that, he said, hey, I'm going to learn some of this machine learning stuff. It looks kind of cool. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that term before. I think this was 2017, 2016. I can't remember when. And uh, I said, let me know what you learn. And Mm -hmm. I was just going to wait for him to come back in the fall. But then I started doing some more reading on my own. And I said, this is kind of cool. And so I I took a course um, in it. And started doing reading on my own in machine learning and realized, hey, this is really cool. There's a lot of problems that I'm working on right now that could use this. Mm -hmm. As I was thinking along those lines, I started looking in various scientific journals like Chaos, for example. And it's one I publish in frequently. I shouldn't say frequently, but it's one I tend to publish in. Um, I started seeing the terms machine learning pop up again and again and again. And I was thinking to myself, huh, people are starting to sort of get their hooks into this idea of using machine learning to solve problems and dynamical systems. And then as I read more, I said, wait a minute, astronomers have been doing this now for a little while Mm -hmm. as well. And other fields have been doing this too. And it just sort of kind of made me realize, hey, this is probably something I should give more serious attention to. It seems like it's the a future, a future direction for science. I don't want to call it the future direction for science, but a future direction for science. A, a, a tool, a new a newish tool that mm-hmm. scientists can use to solve problems. Yeah, I think it's been around for a long time, right? But it's like Yeah. We're just now getting to a point where it's it's being used widely. And that's for reasons that we can talk about in a bit. That has, I think, to do with data, right? It has everything to do with data, and we can cover that more in a bit. But I just want to say, um, your student was very smart because, you know, I'm looking up statistics of machine learning, people who program computers to to learn on their own. And the average salaries are like 150 k to start with yeah. a bachelor's degree. There's 10,000 open jobs in the United States alone that they just cannot fill. Not only can they not fill them, but they can't keep employees because the the not because the jobs are bad, but because companies are being so competitive in trying to pay people more and more and more and more that they're literally stealing like some of the only few skilled people in the country at this this um, one one tool. So it's uh, incredibly interesting. And anyone listening, if you're in, even if you're not in science, 
I implore you to, to learn this because you could probably reach out to like an, a startup having no degree at all and just having like a certificate for a machine learning course you took online and they would probably be willing to invest in you because the, the job market just is not supplying a lot of people. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an incredibly ripe field and I myself have gotten really interested in it. Literally every organization is using it in some way. You know, they might yeah. not be using it directly, but they're using it in some way. You mentioned the pictures earlier, picture yep. recognition. I didn't know this, but I was I was doing some research for this interview, and I looked up uh, Yelp. If you know Yelp, if you go on Yelp, which is like a, a restaurant rating app, you know, you can give the restaurant ratings and you can post pictures or whatnot. When you post a picture, Yelp has a built-in machine learning tool that identifies and categorizes the picture. So is it a picture of the interior? Is it a picture of the exterior? Is it a picture of food? Is it a picture of the drinks? Is it a picture of, you know, whatever? And it does this all automatically. And and that's just one of the, like, hundreds of examples. Do you have any examples that stick out to you? Uh, Facebook. Yes, of and course. image, you know, you tag images or automatically tag images. Uh, mm -hmm. It's another good example. Uh, Netflix, the recommender system that they use, that uses machine learning. Uh, yeah. So if you watch... Uh, I don't know, the most recent Avengers movie available on Netflix, then it will um, use your viewing history and other people who have seen the Avengers movie and recommend to you new movies to watch mm -hmm. based on what other people watched after that or before that. Uh, Amazon, another recommender system, right? Yeah. You buy this product, it'll say, hey, people who bought this product also bought, right? All yep. of this is machine learning out there in industry. Uh, another example that I've heard of is uh, t-shirt sizing. Essentially, um, this is an example of unsupervised learning where you don't have what we call labeled data. So you don't know the answer beforehand, you just have mm -hmm. data. And um, you can, for example, do things like, I don't know, um, chest size and maybe torso height. I'm just kind of making up some mm -hmm. variables here. Okay? Yeah. You can plot those on a graph and what you'll find is the data will cluster and then you can say, okay, well, I have these you know, four clusters uh, what size do I make my t-shirts? Well, my small will be in the, you know, the mm -hmm. mean of the cluster. That's like the smallest cluster, if you will, in right. terms of, you know, ch chest size and torso length, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So you can choose your t-shirt sizes by looking at these types of clustering algorithms. Uh, and the list goes on and on. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, we could probably do an entire hour show just talking oh, just, about how yeah. this stuff is used. <laughs> of course. It's everywhere. Like you said, it's everywhere. Right. Now, one of the more interesting things lately has been the way that you mentioned Facebook. First off, there's a really interesting thing that happens on Facebook that people can attribute to machine learning. You mentioned it, and I think this is what you meant. But when you upload a picture, like if I upload a picture of me and my wife, Facebook will automatically, you know, put her face in a square yep. and be like, is this Jess, is this Jess Drackler? You know, it, it somehow has this facial recognition ability to cycle through my friends list and try to figure out whose face that is. Um, and it's, it, that's like mind boggling to that should sound like magic to people who aren't familiar with this field. I, I often wonder, like most people probably just go about their day and they don't even realize the, the insanity that is around everything they do. Twitter is one of the more interesting ones. And Twitter's actually uses a machine learning algorithm that I think poses a lot of problems. Um, they try to cycle posts that get engagement to the top of your feed um the problem i think with cycling posts that get engagement is the way in which engagement is measured um because humans are more likely to engage with things that they disagree with and things that are polarizing 
So if you post a, a you know a, something on Twitter that says like Donald Trump is a racist pig, um, that will generate a lot of engagement. It will generate people agreeing. It will generate like people vilifying you for saying such a thing, and that gets cycled to the top. And it, I think, it actually reinforces the polarizing nature of politics in America or in the world today. And I wonder to what degree the Facebook uses a very similar algorithm. I wonder to what degree that aspect of social media is is so like dirty to the way that we see politics today. I don't know. Well, I think what you're pointing out is bias in your um, training data, mm-hmm. essentially. So these algorithms are only as good as the data we feed into them, and all data have bias. Uh, I could give you a good example. Uh, I was reading a New York Times article, I think it was from 2018, that was talking about a facial recognition algorithm. Mm-hmm. Not the one used in Facebook. I'm not sure exactly where this one was used, but um, I don't believe they actually said where it was used, if I remember correctly. Regardless, the algorithm was 99% accurate or so on white male faces. Mm-hmm. And it had an over 35% error rate on um basically dark dark the faces of dark-skinned women mm-hmm. now why is that well if you looked at the training de- data that was used to teach this algorithm 75 percent of the pictures were of white men and over 80 percent of the pictures were of white people i see and so, so yeah you can't expect these algorithms to work well in in identifying a diverse set of people if you don't train them on a diverse set of people. Right. And so you you know we're we're um this is an interesting transition because in order to do machine learning well you do need a lot of data, right? You right. need to be able to to supply you should treat you know treat the computer or the algorithm like a child and you need to supply it with a lot of experience, life experience if you will. And ideally you would supply it with based off of what you're saying you'd want to supply it with as diverse experience as possible. Experiences that cover every range of diversity um, so that your algorithm is not inherently biased. Right? Um, right. So Good luck. Yes, of course. <laughs> is, th- is this one of like the major ethical dilemmas in the world of machine learning is getting unbiased data? I, I think there are a lot of ethical dilemmas um, in the world of machine learning, and I'm not an ethicist, so this is all now coming from personal opinion and less of like, you know, here I am as a quote unquote authority is on the, ethics of machine learning. Is there a such thing as an ethicist? Oh, yeah. Really? It's a job. Yeah, sure. They huh. can even get hired by corporations and, you know, business ethics and things like that. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. I could see lo- I could see applications of that now. Yeah. I'm thinking about people who sit in front of a camera and decide what is and what isn't ethical. But no, I could see like if you're on a PR team for a business and you want to. OK, I got you. OK, yeah. we can continue. Yeah. OK, so no, no, it's no problem. It's a perfectly good uh, se- uh, sort of sideline there. Um, so anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. Ethics of machine learning. So uh, biased data. You know, you have to be really careful with that. I give you a couple of examples. I was listening to a podcast, another podcast just the other day, and they were talking about um, the design of cars. So now this isn't machine learning, but it carries over to machine learning as basic idea. Uh, crash test dummies are typically built to be like the 50th percentile male. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but women are not the 50th percentile male. Right. And then up until recently, there weren't any female crash test dummies. Huh. Now, the female crash test dummies that are more currently used apparently are basically just smaller than the male ones. So basically take a male dummy and Mm -hmm. make it smaller. So in the 50s, there was a push for um, female crash test dummies, but the auto industry basically had said, no, that would be too expensive. 
we'll just use these male dummies. Now, the result of, of that is for many women, cars don't fit well. They have to sit a little bit further forward in the seat, various types of things. They just uh-huh. they, The seats don't fit them well. Uh, the, the other result is that there's a 17% increase in fatalities for women in car accidents because yeah. you know the, the seat belts aren't fit for them through the crash test dummy and so on and so forth. So this is a machine learning, but it's the exact same thing. Uh, yes. There, there are medical trials, for example, where they'll start by testing on men. Mm-hmm. And if they have promising results on men, then they'll test women. But if they're not promising results, they won't test on women. So now the question is, you know, what drugs have we missed for women ah, that yes. didn't work well on men first, but would have worked well on women? So we have this perception of the default individual, typically white male. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when we build our data around that assumption, then what we're going to do are miss at least half the population, right? At least when it comes yeah. to women, yeah, yeah, <laughs> actually more than half yeah. the population. Um, when it comes to uh, sort of da- data analysis, data generation, uh, I was reading another article. Uh, I think there's something like 117 million Americans in the facial recognitions um, databases for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And um, the majority of them are African-American males. Okay. Meaning that they're going to be much more sensitive to getting returns on facial recognition mm-hmm. software than other people. Now, is that is that a fair and balanced way of sort of doing law enforcement? You know, they talk about, you know, who's more likely to get caught in right. this particular yeah. facial record, right? Uh-huh. And now the reason why there's more African-American males is because there tends to be more, uh, uh, they tend to be in more mugshots from what I was yes. reading. right. So there's another, you know, another example. If you have a, a crime sort of detection algorithm and it's biased by where we believe high crime areas mm-hmm. are, then of course you might be missing crime in traditionally low crime areas, or it might be the fact that those areas truly aren't high crime. It's just our biases and our perceptions have labeled them as such. Right. I'm thinking about the, the prior example you gave um, where the facial recognition algorithm was, was really good at, at identifying white male faces and not so good at, at faces of, of darker skinned women. Um, this is something that could be pr- particularly problematic when you're talking about like a self-driving car, yes. which is meant to brake, brake for yeah. people walking across the street or bikers or something. If you're biased against, you know, if, if suddenly all black women are getting mowed down by self-driving cars, then we know we have a problem with our machine learning algorithm. Yeah. That there's a very interesting bias, um, built in. Yeah. You know, in 2015, I read another article that Google had apologized because it had a photo app that identified African-Americans as gorillas. Yes, I saw that, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's lots of different ways harm can be done through biased Mm -hmm. data. And then using the because when you train a machine algorithm with your biased data, that machine learning algorithm is going to have those biases. Right. So whatever artificial intelligence we produce is going to have the same biases that we have. Right. If okay. we're not careful with our data collection. Yes. I, I'll give one uh, interesting example. So I go to, I'm a PhD student at the Rochester Institute of Technology, and it's a, obviously by the name, it's a big tech school. And um, they were having this big expo, like a tech expo. And there were some students there that developed an algorithm, a machine learning algorithm that scanned through every episode of The Simpsons. Okay. It scanned through every episode of The Simpsons. And downloaded all of that data, all of the different characters in The Simpsons, and then it was it was um, hooked up to this recognition software so that you could walk in front of a camera at this booth, and it would Simpsonify you. 
It would find a character in The Simpsons that resembled your body type, that resembled your stature, that resembled, you know, everything about you. And then it would Simpsonize, like, your surroundings. So there would be a big screen, and on the screen you would see yourself, but it wouldn't be you, it would be Simpson you. Um, yeah. And they were talking to me about how there's certain individuals, like, um, like to be insensitive, really fat people. If really fat people came by and they stood in front of it, the algorithm would not do a good job of Simpson, uh, Simpsonifying them because they couldn't find characters in the training data that actually represented that body type um, and other things like that. And so that's actually – I just thought about that, Simpson Simpsoning. It freaked me out because it's yeah. like – it's it's incredibly, incredibly – and it's worked in real time. Like you could watch – it scan it would scan the crowd and it would turn the crowd into literally like a scene in the Simpsons. It was incredible. It was really have, cool. You see, have you seen the fake faces generated by uh, artificial neural networks? I have not. Okay, so you can get these disturbingly realistic fake faces. These are people that don't exist uh -huh. and they're built from what are called uh, generative adversarial networks or GANs. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what they do is they basically bring in a whole bunch of pictures into the network, a bunch of different people. Yeah. Okay. And so the network starts to learn what are important facial features mm -hmm. of each individual. And then what it can do is take two different pictures and melt them together. Take one as the primary where maybe it keeps the um, the nose placement, the eye separation, mm -hmm. maybe beard or no beard, whatever the case might be. And then with the second picture might be adjust slightly the position of the eyes, the skin tone, yeah. hairstyle, whatever. And you get this picture of someone who does not exist that looks real. Uh, we're seeing deep fake videos now uh -huh. where they're using these algorithms Those to are insane. Yes. Yes, they are. Um, again, process of these, these machine learning algorithms that are producing, um, these videos pretty, pretty accurately. Yes. It's so interesting. It's interesting. And it's also scary because, yeah. you know, if someone wanted to, they could easily scan every episode of my podcast. And get me moving my mouth in every potential yep. way, saying every potential word. And they could reconstruct a video of me that looks just like me, saying some really outlandish, racist, homophobic, whatever. They could recreate me saying all of that stuff very easily. And it would look really real, and it would pass the eye test very easily. Um, it's one of the ways in which the advance of, of this sort of technology actually scares me a little bit. Um, well, ter terrifies me a bit. I don't think anyone's going to do that. I don't think I'm at the level where people would do that. But I'm just saying is, is you know, in the sure. future, it's something. If you're to, a political figure, though, yes. I mean, that makes you an easy target. Correct. Or a figure leader of industry or whatever. You know, these um, GANs uh, also are used for science. So mm -hmm. uh, was um, as I was preparing for your show, I was reading some articles and I came across something that I wasn't actually aware of with these GANs. Uh, they're using them for uh, trying to determine what theory is plausible to explain various phenomena. Hmm. And astrophysicists have really jumped onto this where they're looking at um, a bunch of collection of galaxies, for example, a bunch of pictures. Yeah. And they are able to then identify what are the salient features of these images. And then by tweaking these salient features, they can let the galaxies evolve. Mm -hmm. By using information from these learning oh. and say, okay, if I tweak this, what's my outcome? So you can now start to use these GANs to distinguish between what's the most likely explanation for this observation that we're seeing in these galaxies. Mm. Uh, now, it can't by itself figure out the set of, of um, choices, set of theories right. to choose from. Mm -hmm. Humans have to do that. Yes. But still, that's pretty promising. There's a, another group at ETH Zurich who – 
um, use the position of the sun and Mars in the Earth's sky mm -hmm. to, deduce, to deduce the fact that we have a heliocentric model of the solar system. This, yeah, this stuff is like, this is the Isn't stuff that, slick? that yeah, yeah, that I find so interesting. One of the more interesting, I, I want to call it a low hanging fruit, but clearly it's not because it hasn't been done yet, is I don't think a machine learning algorithm has yet been able to do um, like galaxy classification. So look at galaxies and determine whether or not they're spiral galaxies or, or lenticular galaxies or elliptical galaxies. And this is one of the, again, I don't want to call it a low hanging fruit. It's a low hanging fruit in the sense that getting it done is obvious, like it's something that needs to be done. But it's not a low-hanging fruit in the sense that it's been really hard to do thus far. And that's, really? That shocks yeah. me. I have not yet seen anyone who's been able to do it with confidence and reliably. Um, and it might have everything to do with training data. It might have everything to do with the fact that, you know, you have to feed in. I, I People have probably done clusters. I don't like clustering algorithms to cluster them. But I don't, you get all sorts of different problems like viewing angles and, and um, like a range of problems uh things like yeah but this seems doable um, yeah right doesn't and it? i'll tell you why because like you know for example there is a there was a plastic competition it's p-l-a-s-t-i-c-c -C, mm -hmm. and it's some uh astrophysical um, program that's a acronym for something I don't remember what but they had put their data on this website called Kaggle and what they were trying to do is get people to classify astronomical objects by their light curve because mm -hmm. they were going to collect so many light curves they needed some kind of automated way of doing that yeah and so I have to imagine that there's somebody out there working on this for galaxies so well, I'm sure the there's many people working on it yeah. One of the algorithms that you, um, you you do for image classification is called convolutional neural networks, and they work by they work similar to what your brain sees. Uh, what they do is they apply various filters and ask how well do regions of the image match up to the filters. So, give you a more concrete example, uh, one filter might be um, composed of vertical lines, mm -hmm. and so the convolutional neural net will take this vertical lines and just move it all around your image and say, okay, where and how strongly does the image line up with these vertical lines? Mm -hmm. And another filter might be diagonal lines. There may be some shading differences in a filter, so on and so forth. And by identifying what patterns right, are in the picture, uh, you can then classify the picture. So a tree might very strongly line up with the vertical lines filter, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Whereas a cat might you know, more strongly line up with maybe a gradient type filter because the cat's fur is kind of fluffy yes. or whatever. Mm -hmm. All right. So when it comes to training these things, one of the things that you do to make more data for yourself is to actually change the viewing perspective of the image. You can tilt the image, you can warp the image, you can add noise to the image. So I would ex suspect that viewing angles mm. may not be that large of a hurdle to overcome. Now, if you're looking edge on, Right. That's one yeah, thing. Yeah. But if you're not edge on, I don't know. I'm not an astrophysicist and I don't know the state of that problem, but it just seems to me like that would be something that would be totally doable. Yeah. Well, I, as far as I know, no one has been able to do it well. Interesting. Yet. So that could be a potential avenue that you focus on if you have interested students. Um, but shifting into data, right? Yeah. In order to do machine learning well, you need lots of data. I was looking up, I was curious by like how much data Google and Facebook actually have. Okay, how much do they actually physically have? We're at a point now, I think this is really interesting, and I'm curious what you think about it. Because it's happened maybe over the course of your lifetime, whereas it's a little newer to me.
But when I was a kid, I remember like you'd buy a computer and maybe the computer would come with like 250 gigabytes of memory. Maybe. <laughs> that was like the standard number. Now you buy a computer, it's like 500 gigs, a terabyte. It seems like nothing. Um, but even over the course of my lifetime, I've noticed this like shift in data. Storage has gone up and up and up and it's gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. You can go buy a terabyte of storage at the store at on or on Amazon for like forty dollars. I don't know what that would run you in the nineties or or in the early two thousands, but I think it'd be a lot more than forty dollars. Um, but now you can even get unlimited storage online. Like you could yeah. Google gives you fifteen gigabytes to sign up. You could feasibly make Gmail accounts to your heart's content and get literally infinite data for free. We're not at a point now where we're, we are held back by storage capacity. And because of that, we have companies like Google and Facebook storing mass amounts of data. So I have some numbers here when hopefully these surprise you. They blew my mind. Okay. Google processes 40,000 search queries every second on okay. average. Okay. That translates to three and a half billion searches per day, one and a half trillion searches per year worldwide. And they currently process 20 petabytes of data every day. Their estimated storage, so actual data that they have on storage in a cluster somewhere, is approaching 20 exabytes. Now, for people who don't know what an exabyte is, because I didn't, um, I'll give you some context. A typical computer, like I mentioned, has a 500 gigabyte hard drive. That uh, 20 exabytes would be the equivalent of 30 million like computers, typical computers you would buy at the store with 500 gigabytes of memory. Facebook, on the other hand, is is approaching, I think, a single exabyte. So that is is an extraordinary amount of data as well. They process two and a half million pieces of content every day, with five hundred plus terabytes of data every day. That's two. That that counts. This is what Facebook released. That's two point seven billion likes. People clicking like two point seven billion times per day on average. Um, three hundred million photos are uploaded uploaded every day. Three hundred million. And I don't know if that counts Instagram, too. I know it's owned by the same company. I don't know if it counts. Um, and they scan 105 terabytes of data each half hour for their, like, spam filtering. So they're cycling through 105 terabytes every half hour. That's insane. And they hold nearly an exabyte of data, which is essentially 2 million desktop computers. And their VP of engineering, his name is Jay Parik, I believe, says... That seems like a lot of data now, but no one will care about 100 petabytes of data in your warehouse in five years. That won't even matter because the data yeah. will explode so much. What has this been like for you throughout your lifetime seeing this like explosion of data to the point now where 100 petabytes might not even be significant? Yeah, it's uh, actually it's rather consistent with my life experience. So I remember my first um, computer I guess I was in high school and uh, let's for a moment not look at data storage, but look at just processor speed because it kind of parallels. Uh, I had an eight megahertz processor mm -hmm. that if you pushed the turbo switch on, you got to 20 megahertz. Mm. Okay. Okay. And back in the day, you know, you would every, every year you would have significant bumps in processor speed, mm -hmm. bang, 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 bang. Right. Yeah. And now, you know, processor speed is, has been pretty flat over the last several years. You know, the, in fact, the processor, I just built a computer for myself back in um, December and that processor is an all intensive purpose is about as fast as the one that I built in 2011. I mean, there's probably a couple tenths of a gigahertz difference, but mm -hmm. you know, nothing, 
nothing is going to really blow your mind compared to like when I was a kid, when we were seeing these massive jumps from one year, you actually would have computers, you know, basically go out of date from one year to the next. If you were doing like, you know, scientific computing or something mm-hmm. like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, memory is the same thing, you know, storage. I remember, you know, being excited when a friend of mine got a computer with a gigabyte hard drive in it. A gigabyte? And yeah. what year what year would you say this was? Oh boy, that was probably Not back to give in college. Away your age, but... Yeah, it was probably back in college. Okay. Um and you know, and, and now I have a the computer I built has eight terabytes of data in it, mm-hmm. uh storage. I if I weren't a scientist, I would never need that much data. No. Storage. Yeah, most right? people are pretty satisfied with like a five hundred gigabyte hard drive, I think. Right. Yeah. Uh so because of my personal like my personal hobbies and my work, I, I need that, that type of space. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, absolutely. And and this we're essentially in an era of infinite storage. Mm-hmm. We can provide the storage that we need for the for the use that we need. unless you're of course, you know, you're talking about, you know, Google Google or Facebook that are worried about, you know, running out of maybe space in their warehouse or having to build more warehouses. Well they to certainly have enough store money data. to store more data. Right. Yeah. So they're capable of doing that. So that's not that's not gonna hold them back anytime right. soon. Mm-hmm. Um, what might hold them back is the power demands required for that type of work. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, but probably not anytime soon. So yeah, this doesn't surprise me. The other thing that's been impressive too is the, and also related to machine learning is the speed at which, um, GPUs have increased. Yeah. Can you and, explain this, this, I don't even, I don't even know the difference between like a CPU GPU computing. Okay. Um, I hear a lot about it, but if you don't mind explaining yeah, it like so I'm five. At the simplest level, CPU is the, the processor you have in your computer. So you might, for example, have a, I don't know, an i7 from Intel. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's your processor. And it, and it probably runs at maybe four-ish gigahertz. There's probably four, six, eight cores in that. But basically, it's a serial processor. It does one instruction after the next, after mm-hmm. the next, at a fairly fast rate, you know, you know four, yeah. four gigahertz or whatever. Then there's GPU. That's graphics processing unit. That's your graphics card, essentially. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that will have thousands of cores on it, but they run in parallel. Yeah. And that's the advantage of, so it doesn't have to wait for the next thing to be done or for the or previous thing to be done to do the next thing because it's mm-hmm. distributing the job across a whole bunch of slower processors. Yeah. And that's where a lot of machine learning gets um, its power from because you can then, instead of waiting for the CPU to do its one thing at a time, the GPU can do a whole bunch of things at one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a neural network that takes, I think it was something like four or five minutes to train on my CPU, and it's done in, I don't know, 10, 20 seconds on my GPU. Mm. Yeah, I'll give people a relevant example for why it's necessary. People might n- not grasp why it's necessary to speed up computers um, past what they already are because we do have these insane supercomputers. Um, the Blue Water supercomputer, which is one of the best in the world in Illinois, and they're building an even powerful one called Frontera. It's in Texas. I think it's completed now. And that has a lot of GPU computing uh, space. Um, to run, uh, right now I'm doing binary neutron star simulations. So I'm simulating two neutron stars merging closer and closer together, together, smashing into one another and creating a black hole. To simulate 200 milliseconds of this sort of interaction, just 200 milliseconds of two neutron stars spiraling, it takes two months on the world's most powerful computer. Okay? So it's imperative that if we want to do this form of science, you got to speed up the computer. And that's where GPUs come in. 
Um, and there's a lot of people in the, this field. But first off, I'm really interested in something you said. I'll switch back. You said yeah. it only took five minutes to train a neural network. Yeah, is this so typical? I'm, like, how fast? How oh, long no, does no, it take? No, no. It's not typical. My my data sets were fairly small, and the architecture of my neural network was rather simple. I see. So, um, you know, it, it, uh, for more complicated, if you're doing like true deep learning, which I was not doing true deep mm -hmm. learning, where you have lots of layers in your network, it can take weeks, mm -hmm. days, weeks, you know, to, to train a network. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm doing some very minor league stuff here. Yes. Uh, yeah. But do you, and when you train it, do you train it once? You train it once and it becomes like this functioning algorithm and then you can feed it data and it processes the data and does the image recognition or the speech recognition actually, or whatever it does. It does uh, it really fast? You actually train it multiple times. So okay. I was do at the time that I was saying was per epoch. So the, uh, an epoch is once through your data set. Mm -hmm. And what you can do is when you're training these algorithms is you have a data set. You say, okay, this is my training data. You run it through once um, and then what you will uh, do is maybe shuffle that data, whatever the case might be, and run it through again, mm -hmm. train it again on the same set of data, and again and again and again. And it's basically like, um, well, humans do this too, right? No one learns calculus in their first go around. Nope, they sure don't. Got to see it multiple times, yep. right? Same thing with these algorithms. So if you can do this uh, epoch-based training where you train the network maybe 10, 50 epochs, over 50 epochs, it gets better, more accurate in its ability to discriminate images or make calculations, whatever it's doing. Does it amaze you how like computers we are? Or maybe how like how computers are like us? Like the similarities no. in our brains? No. Uh, no, because we built them. Right, that's very true. So yeah. right, yeah. So our own biases are the way we experience the world is reflected in our inventions, in our science. And so the things that we build and, and we make should have similar characteristics to us, mm -hmm. whether we intend it to or not. It's very true. Very true. Um data. I mentioned how much data Facebook and Google have. Right. It's, it's become so insane. You can go on Google and you can sign in your Gmail account online and you can download your data, your profile, essentially, a profile of you, all of the, not all of, because Google's probably hiding some stuff, but most of the data that Google has on you. This is things like where you've been on Google Maps. So mm -hmm. it's tracking where, where you were. Um, if you ever pick up your phone, if you have an Android phone, you say, hey, Google. And then you say, look up um, how many stars there are in the Milky Way galaxy. It records that, and it stores it as an audio file in your profile. Everything you do, all your searches, all your YouTube watch history, all the videos you uploaded to YouTube, everything you've ever done on a Google-associated yep. device, things you've done in apps, data that is, is associated with apps, all of it you can download and you can look at it, and you can get like a historical profile of your life online. You can do the same thing with Facebook where you can download like a gigabyte worth of data that is everything you do on Facebook, your posts, your pictures, your comments, everything. Some people even download their Facebook uh, profile and find that there's actually audio and video files in them from talks or conversations they had on Messenger, which is insane to me. Um, I talk to my mom on Messenger yeah. all the time, and I'm sure that 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 stuff doesn't just get thrown away. I'm sure that those conversations I have with my family – are sitting somewhere on a cluster um, for anyone to, to look at. I'm not saying Facebook sells that data, but they could. They might. It's theirs. Um, it's perfectly, I th probably legal for them to sell it. Uh, I don't know. That's a fuzzy, fuzzy world. But the point is, your entire life now is like sitting somewhere. 
on various computers. Everything you like, everything you do, everything you've done, everything you searched, your entire life. Data is becoming such a commodity. Um, but actually, that's my question. Do you think yeah. data is becoming a commodity? No, you- it has become a commodity. And it has it become that a ship has sailed. Yes. So, I mean, Google is using all your data for advertising purposes, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to figure out how to get you the best advertising. Facebook is trying to do the same thing. Uh, at some point, there, if there aren't already, there will be data brokers. I mean, we actually found out about the whole Cambridge Analytica issue back in 2016. Yes. Right. Giving this data to people to, uh, for whatever various reasons. Um, so I th- see in the future, um, that if there aren't already data brokers, there, there will be, and you will have to deal with that when you're doing things like, for example, applying for a loan. Mm-hmm. So let's say you go to a loan and you go to the banker and in years gone by, uh, you got the loan because, you know, you looked like you'd pay it back. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And you, maybe you were friends with the local banker or whatever the case might be. Yep. They knew you that way. But now imagine a machine learning algorithm that determines whether or not you get a loan. Yeah. Okay. And it's such a complicated algorithm that no one really knows how it works. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there are prob- there are certainly algorithms that we have today that we don't really know exactly how they work. Right. Okay. We know, you know, the underlying mathematics, but mm-hmm. how it identifies the salient features, these kind of things could be kind of a mystery. So anyway, go back to the loan and the banker comes back to you and says, sorry, the algorithm rejected your loan. Well, why? Well, I don't know. No one understands the algorithm. Mm -hmm. And it could have been because at one point I went to, um, BB King's blues club in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. And, uh, the algorithm identified that people who go to the BBB King's blues club in Memphis, Tennessee are more likely to default on a loan. Mm -hmm. Is this already being done though? Because oh, I'm sure it is. I get rejections for um, – I have my credit's excellent, right? I, I, I watered it like a fine plant throughout my entire years in college, and I'll still get denials for certain things. Um, sure. And the, the of course, the criteria for the denial is very arbitrary, and it, it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't feel like it's reflective of, of my history in any way, and it literally could just be – um, some algorithm used by the banking company that flagged a particular thing that I did, you know, yeah. like, oh, he goes to the bar on every other weekend or something. And that makes him less likely or he got a speeding to something, you know. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. And it you bring up a, a great point because, you know, we're going to be in a situation now where there was a little bit of a reliance, I think, in this society on giving people an opportunity even if their past indicates you shouldn't give them the opportunity, right? Like right. if you look at most billionaires or mo- most billionaires who actually built their wealth, they had a long history of failure before they eventually got the investment for the company that built them their billions. And it's possible that if all of our decisions are based on whether or not an algorithm deems you you know, worthy, then you're going to weed out very, very good ideas from society. That's what I see happening and, and I – hope that we build in not build in but we still allow for human intervention in these algorithms and we don't rely on them to just hand out yeses and nos to everything yeah i mean for a long time actually i should uh preface this by saying there's a great book it's called 20 21 lessons for the 21st century written by um 
Yuval Noah Harai, I believe I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And uh, he talks about sort of um, these types of things. In fact, my banker example uh, is one that he talks about in his book. And he says that, you know, for a long time, human intuition was sort of the, or feelings, was a great arbiter in decision making, right? Because yeah. we didn't know better. Uh, the level of complexity of the world was low enough that, you know, you could sort of suss these things out on your own. And it wasn't perfect, but it, it, it could get the job done in a pinch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, as the complexity of the world increases and um, these things become more interconnected, uh, phenomena and things like that, it might very well be that these big data algorithms are capable of making the most efficient choices, mm-hmm. right? Yes. In finance and healthcare and government and so forth. But is that really what we are looking for? Because if you make those most efficient choices, then that person who was asking for the loan probably wouldn't get the loan mm-hmm. by the algorithm. Right. But the person who saw a little bit of spark in this person's eye when they were talking about this particular, you know, initiative mm-hmm. might say, "Hey, you know what? This person's a hard worker. Let's let's give yeah. them a chance." Mm-hmm. Uh, but think about how much of our lives we've already pushed off onto machine learning. So, for example, when I'm flipping through Netflix. I'll typically watch the recommended shows. Yeah. Right. Without uh-huh. digging too much further. Yeah. Uh, when I'm when I take a drive, I whip out my phone and get my phone's instructions on how to get from point A to point B without really thinking twice about it. Yeah. Exactly. I've already seeded sub- quite a few, you know, of my decisions in my daily life to the algorithms. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I can only see that increasing. Yeah. My. Uh, so an interesting thing that my wife does every day, she drives the, to work every day. She drives back. It's like a 20 minute drive. Um, and every single day when she gets into her car, the first thing she does is turn the GPS on, even though she knows where she's going. But the reason is because on some days it will give her a different route to get home because it, it understands where the backups, where the backups are, where the traffic is, where an accident is, has all of that uh, built in and understood. And it will take her for the fastest from point A to point B. Um, and it's very, it's very, very good at, at doing what you're saying in creating efficiency, finding yep. the most efficient route. Um, and it's just one of the, the more interesting things. There was a, an interesting website I found called Big Dot Exchange. I don't know if it's a legit website. I think it's, it looks pretty legit. It looks like people use it, but it is exactly what you were saying. It's a data broker. Okay. And you can okay. go on there no matter who you are and you can buy data. It's a minimum of $100. You can buy data and the data comes from a bunch of companies, Facebook, Google, Twitter, etc. And you can buy – and what they do is they don't just sell you raw data. They sell you useful data. And I think this is maybe where we're getting into the data broker thing. They'll sell you data. Some of the examples that I found on their website were they'll sell you data like data sets that include times people liked posts related to hats. Yeah. Times people shared or commented on posts referencing headphones. Things like, so an advertising company like, I don't know, uh, someone who makes hats could buy this data and figure out when's the best time to put our ads on Facebook for hats. And when will we get the most engagement on the hat post? And they do this and try to drive interest. And, it, you know, what we're realizing, and I actually realized this when I advertised the podcast, is that there are really a such thing as peak times. There yeah. are times when you should share stuff and when you should not share stuff. And the fi- the time that – so Friday evenings, don't bother. 
It's not even worth your time. No one engages on a Friday evening on anything I, I post, anything I share. But if it's on a weekday that isn't Friday and it's like seven, six, seven o'clock, that is when I get the most engagement ever. Hmm. If I want a Twitter post to go viral, um, I will always save it. If I think, man, that's a good Twitter, that's a good Twitter post, I'll wait. I'll wait until seven or eight p.m. and then I'll post it because the amount of engagement I get, I've, I've actually earlier this week I did this thing where it was, it was like eight a.m. and I thought of something funny to say and I posted it on Twitter and uh, like a half hour went by. And nothing. I didn't get a like. I didn't get a, a retweet. I got nothing. You can check on Twitter how many people look at your stuff. It was like 40. You know, normally when I post something, I can get like a thousand um, engagements. I got 40. So I'm like, what is going on? So I, I did a, a test. I deleted it. I copy and pasted it. And I posted it again later at 7 p.m. And it got something like 25 retweets and like 100 and some likes. And like 3,000 engagements. And it's a real thing. And advertisers yeah. know it's a real thing, and they're trying to mine the data to find the best time to do certain things. Uh, and it's very interesting to me. And, and I even utilize it, but I don't buy data for it. Well, you can do it in Facebook, too. So I'm uh, on the board of the Billtown Blues Association. We're mm -hmm. a blues music organization for American blues and roots music. And yeah. uh, we've been trying to uh, engage younger uh, audience mm -hmm. uh, through Facebook. And so what we can do with Facebook when you buy ads on Facebook is that you can select, you know, particular yeah. characteristics of the individual that you target mm -hmm. on Facebook. You know, again, it's the same kind of thing. Um, trying using advertise or sorry, using data to direct your advertisements. The saying is in social media and other, uh, um, you know, tech, if you will, mm -hmm. if you're if you're not paying for it, then you're the product. Yes. And this is what they mean, your data. And your data is by far more valuable than anything else out there. Right. Yes, right. Ex absolutely. There's this fantastic calculator that I recommend anyone listening. I'll put a link down below. And I recommend you to, to check it out, Chris, if you haven't already. It's by the Financial Times, and it's a what is your data worth calculator. And you go through and you indicate like um, – different things about you. Do you have any like ailments? Do you have diabetes? Do you, you know, how tall are you? Do you own a house? Do you have kids, etc.? And you can calculate how much your data is worth. And for me, I calculated that my data was f a little more than 50 cents to buy <laughs> every quality about me. My data would cost a company 50 cents. I did some things like some testing. If I had clinical depression, it would bring that number up to 75 cents which I think wow. is very interesting. If I had, um, if I had, if I was obese, if I clicked the obesity box, it would double the value of my data. Huh. And there's these interesting like way things. And they did this analysis based on what companies pay for what qualities. And they do, they pay more for certain qualities. If I owned a house, it, I would pay more. If I had kids, it would cost more. Um, and it, it, it's so interesting. I'll link it down below people. I encourage you to tell me how much your data is worth. Mine's worth 50 cents. I'm so, already looking at it right now. I haven't started clicking because I want to pay attention to the conversation that we're having. Um, yeah. And I, I'm old now and I can't do the multitasking very well. So I have to uh, <laughs> focus on one thing. But I've got the website on my background. I will definitely check this out. Yeah, do it. I'm curious. I, yeah. as, as far as I could tell, like the maximum data you could ever be charged is like two cents. Like the maximum your data could ever cost. Or I'm sorry, two dollars. The maximum your data could ever. Wait, wow. Yeah, is two dollars. If that's like if you click every perfect box perfectly the way the algorithm wants it to be so at most companies are paying a few dollars for even the most complex one of the big things is wealth 
if you're yeah. wealthy, if you're making you know more than a million dollars a year, the cost of your data skyrockets. Oh sure, um, yes, that doesn't surprise me, and that's one of the things that I noticed. One of the things that I was I've been reading too, also in um, Professor Harai's book, uh, he actually talks about the future of war, and this is related. This sounds crazy, but uh, bear with me. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in the past, uh, wars have been fought for land and territory because that value that was valuable. Yeah. Right. But let's think about today. What's actually valuable today? Today, what's valuable are economic relationships mm-hmm. and uh, data, and so you're not going to score that as easily with warfare. Right. So, you know, if China were to decide to invade Silicon Valley, I mean, what good would it do? Uh, it would actually cost it more than to pull off the invasion because of the damaged trade relationship with the United States. Right. Uh, Google and Facebook could just pack up and leave. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. They're, they're, I mean, they're, these aren't, we're not talking about factories. We're not talking about farm fields here. We're yeah. talking about something that, frankly, in some ways, doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Like in the same sense as wheat and automotive factories right. and land, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, this, you know, speculation is, you know, at some point, will war be worth it? Now, of course, if you throw in, um, you know, climate change, that might throw in that completely <laughs> different yeah. uh, direction. Right. Uh-huh. But when we talk about the economy as it stands today, you know, fewer wars, well, because, you know, what are we actually fighting over uh, when it comes to resources, at mm-hmm. least? Right. Yeah, that's a, um, a, a very good point. Even oil, I mean, compared to intellectual property, that's a drop in a bucket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the next, you know, the next generation of wars, if you will, they'll be cyber. They'll be data. They'll be, you know, dealing with intellectual property. That that will be the the, the, the cash cow, if you will, which you're looking for, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Now, again, this is all personal opinion. I don't want to come off as, you know, this is authoritative Chris here talking about uh, an expert on warfare. I right. am not. But uh-huh. just looking at, you know, trends and, and things, what's what actually carries value? And this data website that you point out is big.exchange is a um, – and uh, the uh, data calculator is, you know, certainly, I think, um, in that direction. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and and you see governments all over the world realizing the power that data has, or even that social influence has. Um, and, you know, wars aren't being fought with guns anymore. They're being fought with, with essentially, um, you know, over the internet, with right. information. I was doing research for a recent episode on 5G, the fifth generation of wireless networks, mm-hmm. um, and they're being rolled out. And there's all of Russia, there's already been found to be these Russian troll farms, these Russian like data farms of people that literally just sit down all day long and they create memes and, 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 uh, false information that they share online rapidly. And the false information is that 5G is bad for you and it will cause cancer and whatnot. Um, which, is a baseless claim. It, could it be true? Sure. We haven't done any tests on the effects that, that, you know, um, high frequency radio waves actually have on the skin of human beings. Um, but the point is there's, it's a baseless claim. It doesn't mean anything, but right. they do it just to, to draw engagement. And I don't I actually don't know. That's one of the scarier things is like, I don't understand. If you look into Russian troll farms and the way that they influence, not just Russia though, this Russia is, everyone always points their finger at Russia. Every government is doing this in some way. Every government yeah. is trying to, to, you know, draw discourse in other countries by doing this sort of thing. But, you know, you look at it and everyone says that, that Russia influenced Donald Trump getting elected. But if you actually talk to a reporter who, who studies these Russian troll farms, you learn that they actually influence both sides pretty equally. 
their goal was not to 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 um, support a candidate. Their goal was to create a lot of uh, conflict. Destabilization. Yes. Yeah. And they would do that. They would support Hillary. They would support Donald Trump. They would support Democrats. They would support Republicans. They would do it all. They would just create memes that were so polarizing that would be shared rapidly online. Uh, and it's interesting. This is where wars will be fought, and not with guns, but but with with data online. Yeah, and I'm day. guessing. You know, you said you don't know why. I'm not a political science. I keep saying this. I'm not a in your, <laughs> in your I think podcast. What, what I find good is just to pretend you are all those things. Okay, that's the way to so, do it. Yeah. All right. So um, I think if you are in a position as a country that you're not benefiting from the current situation, the current equilibrium, mm-hmm. then one strategy to possibly put yourself into a position to benefit is through destabilization. Mm-hmm. So yeah. by so I think there is a clearly a um, payoff, if you will, for countries doing this kind of thing, because they they could possibly work their way in right mm-hmm. to a position that they couldn't have been granted in the current equilibrium. of things. Right. Yeah, that's very possible. So we have these companies now like Facebook, Google, Twitter, Amazon, maybe Netflix. There's a few companies which it seems like almost every American uses, right? Like almost every American is on Facebook. Almost every American is on Google. Almost every one of us uses Google. Okay? So there's a few companies who have like a monopolistic hold on a user's data. You know, Netflix probably doesn't have nearly everyone in America. Amazon maybe doesn't either. But Facebook and Google are two ones in particular where they have a ton of people's data. And some could say if you are going to make data a commodity, which you say it already is, and and I very much agree, if data is a commodity – then do we need to start considering, and of course, this is opinion, and I know um, you're not an economist either, um, <laughs> and neither am I. Uh, do, do we need to start considering that these companies have a monopoly on data and that yes. that is a problem? Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, think about how not only do we not know what they have, we don't know how much they have, and we don't know who has what. Yeah. Okay. So if you wanted to delete yourself from the internet, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, and, you know, in Europe, for example, there's a right to be deleted, right? But how do you actually go about that? Because you don't know who has what, you don't know where it is. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. You don't know where it is in terms of, is it with Facebook or Google? You don't know where it is physically, whether it's a server farm in Kansas or mm-hmm. if it's a server farm in South Africa, right? You don't know. Right. And we have, at up to this point, essentially been very much like, well, it will work itself out. That's been our mindset in dealing with privacy issues, with data storage issues, data about people. Mm-hmm. And if we continue with that mindset, then what we are going to have is a hodgepodge of, of policies that um, probably won't be in the best interest for the individual. Right. But certainly will be in the best interest of the company because the company has all the power. Mm-hmm. Now you can say, well, I'll just stop using Google. Well, you can, but like 75% of the world's uh, email goes through Google servers, whether you have Gmail or not. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So you, it's not like you can adopt out of this. Yeah. I don't even think you can delete a Facebook account anymore. Probably not. I think you can just deactivate it. Yeah. But it's still like, you, it's still there. It, you, all you have to do is log back in, you know, 20 years sure. in the future and it's still there. Still well, ready to go. Amazon claims that you can delete uh, voice recordings from Alexa off their servers. Uh-huh. And maybe you can. I don't know. I don't have any way of verifying that. Yeah. I don't have an Alexa device, so I've never really looked into it. Mm-hmm. But um, so, yeah, it, we have to – there's a fine line, though, that you have to balance, right? So 
do we need regulation on how data is collected and handled and managed? I think so. But too much regulation can then stifle innovation. Yes. So there has to be some balance. I don't claim to know what that balance is, but we can't continue on the trajectory that we're continuing on Mm -hmm. because we just don't, there's no control at this point. There's no, there's no regulation. There's no power. The individual has no power here. Right. It scares me a bit because these companies are incredibly powerful. Like you mentioned Alexa. I have an Alexa and um, there was a recent report that came out about words that trigger Alexa because Alexa is always sending data to Amazon and they send data to Amazon anytime you use it. You say, hey, Alexa, you know, ask your question. That data will be sent to Amazon and it also records like 15 seconds after it records, you know, an even longer duration. But then this report came out about words that actually trigger Alexa to send data. And there's some words that, that are have nothing to do with Alexa. One of them right. is Hey Siri. Yeah. If you say Hey Siri, that, that has everything to do with your iPhone and nothing to do with your Alexa. But Alexa will begin recording and will ship that data off to Amazon. Um, yeah. th- it's, it's these sorts of things that, that become like – that make you step back and say, whoa, this is – a little too intrusive and i think that companies should be smarter in regulating themselves i see this with twitter with twitter um they simultaneously want to be a free speech platform but also silence a lot of people Uh, i think that you need to be able to um regulate yourself or you will be the victim of government regulation and when it comes to big tech if you watch like Facebook, uh, the Facebook CEO or the Google CEO or, or any of those people go and get interviewed by Congress, you realize that these people are not in, in any position to be regulating tech because they don't understand it. Right. Like there was that famous question asked by the, to the, the Facebook, uh, to Mark Zuckerberg. Um, if you don't charge money for your platform, how do you make money? Like yeah. the, the congressman asked this question in all seriousness. He was, he literally didn't know. Mm-hmm. And, it's because the guy's 85 years old. Yep. He has no understanding of how tech works, how big tech works. And I f- have a fear. As much as I fear the big tech companies using my data, I also fear what will happen if we rely on those people to provide the regulation. Yeah. So companies oh. should be proactive in regulating themselves. That's my point. I think so. Um, I think, too, that it's it's easy to point the finger at grandma and grandpa who don't understand technology and laugh. Yes. Uh, but the truth of the matter is nobody really knows what they're doing. Exactly. No, th- we've never had this before in human in, in mankind or humankind. Okay? Yes. We, this is brand new. We are all making this up as we go along. Mm-hmm. And um, the level of complexity that our world currently has is well beyond the scope for people to understand any mm-hmm. one individual, right? Uh, we evolved for a situation of, Oh look, tiger run. I mean, that was pretty right. much what we have, like what was immediate low level of complexity for the most mm-hmm. part. Uh, that's not the world we live in. We, we made a world for ourselves that we were not evolved for. Yeah. And so now we need to um, be very careful about how we move forward and realize that, um, simple fixes like simple regulation fixes yeah. may not actually lead to the outcomes that we would expect. Mm-hmm. Complex systems are notorious for, um, you know, real outcomes being nowhere close to expected outcomes. Yeah, exactly. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I agree. We, we definitely need regulation. Who should be doing it? Well, you know, the companies are a good start, but we also need government oversight because we need to have people who are elected by the people mm-hmm. to also have influence because the people can fire the government. Yes. I can't fire Google. That's very right? true. Yes. So through my votes, I can influence policy, regulation policy. Mm-hmm. I can't influence Google other than you know spending money in other companies. But again, with this technology, it's not like you have much of a choice as to who you're using. Exactly. Yeah, I agree completely. Another potential issue I see is, is you know, we, you mentioned chaos. Well, there's no better model. Well, there probably is. So, and I'm sure you'll correct me. But one of the great models will say that for chaos is financial markets. Okay. Is that, would that be considered chaotic? Uh, certainly complex chaos. It's always hard to distinguish between um, com- complexity. I've been doing some reading in economics that actually talk about financial markets as being random walks. Okay. Um, so, enough. or sim- well simulated by random walks. Uh-huh. But regardless, uh, if we put the term chaos away and just use the word complexity, we can certainly talk about the complexity of financial markets. They are definitely complex structures. Yes. So, one of the things that affects them, at least from my perspective, and I think also is evident evident by the fact that companies hire PR firms, you know, to to handle this sort of thing is public opinion. Public mm-hmm. opinion will f- affect an individual company's say stock price. Okay, this is something that scares me about things like Google or Facebook, in that they can very easily and readily understand public opinion about a given company. You know, if a com- if if like Old Navy makes a decision and Facebook can easily see the backlash of that decision yep. on their social platform. And they could presumably very easily either invest in the company or, or sell stock in the company to reflect that decision. And thus, literally, you have like a new form of insider trading. But it's not insider trading. It's, it's I don't even know what you'd call it. Is I'd this call some- it predictive analytics. Yes. is that, that That's like yeah. borderline... In my head, I, I think like that's maybe like borderline illegal. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that they they can do that because they have the data? Do you think yeah. they shouldn't do that? Do you think that? Well, I don't know if they should do it or not. Uh, they, according to them, they probably certainly should because yes, it gives them you know course. an advantage. But uh, yeah, it's the data. Um, so you know when you have these complex systems where we don't understand the rules governing them necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, or if we don't, uh, we, at least we don't have maybe, um, equations like you have in physics that tell you, Hey, you know, if you punt a football, how far will it go? Right. Yeah. These kinds of things don't always exist in these social systems. And, um, so how can you get around that? Well, you can get around it with big data and you can use these machine learning algorithms to draw out correlations mm-hmm. and you can say, okay, well, if old Navy posts this about Facebook, uh, there is a 80% chance likely that the Facebook stock will drop. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And you can get that kind of information from these big data algorithms. Uh, one more thing to add to the, the ethics pile, right? Mm-hmm. Should companies be doing that? And we might say, well, what's the, um, what's wrong if Facebook wants to see old Navy's influence on itself? Right. Well, Okay. Uh, maybe that's okay, but then we ask a question about, you know, what about political matters? Mm-hmm. All right, is there a slippery slope that we're going on where this type of technology would then allow, uh, you know, political leaders to influence their their population? 
by using big data? Are we yeah. going to allow I mean, political leaders have always influenced their population, mm -hmm. right? But are we going to allow them to use big data to do that? Yeah, that's a, a, a very good question. And we probably have already made that decision without having made that decision. Because mm. one of one of uh, during the Obama campaign, the first time around, I think 2008, one of the things that he did really well was leverage Facebook. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, that could be the beginning of, you know, politicians using big data through social media mm -hmm. um, to influence voters. I mean, certainly yeah. do it now. Uh, is that is that OK? And we haven't had that conversation. We haven't. That I'm aware I, of. I, I think, you know, we're getting closer to having that conversation yeah. because there are certain decisions being made. Like I think Donald Trump is no longer allowed to block people on Twitter, which I find right. interesting. Um, and I understand it. I don't find it interesting in a bad way. I find it interesting that we've made that decision. Um, so I think we're moving in that direction to transition to science though. Yes. I see a lot of scientists. I encounter this a lot. A lot of scientists who are skeptical of machine learning and using machine learning as much as i see people who are like hurrah and getting on the on the bandwagon and using it for their research i see an equal number of people who are like stay away from that um it's they're very skeptical of it they're very you know they stand back they're scared do you see that ever in 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 the circles that that you run in from your colleagues oh i do i do and i think really when it comes to machine learning the proper way to a one of the proper ways of using it in science is, as I alluded to earlier in the show, it's a tool. Mm -hmm. This particular tool does one thing rather well. It identifies correlations. Yes. Okay. Correlations, as we know, is not causation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as scientists, what we need to do is like we've always done. We have identified correlations in data. We develop models which attempt to explain that correlation. Yes. Okay. Machine learning, sh we, although we use the term model to describe the various algorithms, like, you know, the neural network is a model, convolutional neural network is a model, random forest is a model. It's a bit different, though, in the science sense where when we talk about a model, we're talking about some kind of mechanism to describe a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And... We need scientific models to put the machine learning results into context. Yes. Because we don't understand necessarily how the machine learning algorithm distinguished a spiral galaxy from a bar galaxy mm -hmm. or an elliptical. I'm so not an astrophysicist. That's okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll forgive but, you. you no. know, we might not understand that algorithm works, but that's okay. You know, that tool could be used in other science to figure out what's the distribution in the night sky of elliptical galaxies versus spiral galaxies. Mm -hmm. Then what can we do traditional, quote unquote, traditional science, whatever that means, how can we use um, those results in traditional science to then develop a theory or a model to explain why that is the case? Yes. And then I, we can use that convolutional neural network or whatever to then test that model if we'd like mm -hmm. as one particular test. That is how I tend to look at it. I, yeah. There's one comment that I, I see a lot and I, I wrote it down here because I saw it brought up by a few scientists in a few papers I read and it's they, they say that the machine learning algorithm does not know how to say the data is not clear or or yes to say I don't know like I don't know what you're feeding me this doesn't make any sense it, it doesn't have that ability that filter 
And so it will try to classify everything you feed it, even if you feed it nonsense. That is correct. How do you get over that hurdle? Is that merely uh, an example of, of making sure the data is good that you give it? Yeah, I think in some ways it's a misuse of the tool, right? Okay. So um, I think you have to, one, understand what the machine learning algorithm was trained to do. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand the type of data it was trained on. Yes. And so if you attempt to, um, you know, put a cat picture into an algorithm that identifies horses and people, well, your answer is going to be a horse or a person, even though you know it's a cat. That's yes. a misuse of the algorithm. It mm-hmm. wasn't trained to do that. Right. Right. If you put in poor quality data, so maybe you have a horse picture that has a whole bunch of gaps in it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, if it wasn't trained on those kind of images, then you probably shouldn't expect good results right. from that algorithm. So we have to keep in mind what was the tool made for, how was the tool made, and that should give us information on how to then use that tool in our own work. Right. And th- this is actually another one of the, the problems I see or that I hear people talk about is that when scientists develop these machine learning tools to do their research, a lot of people are not publishing their codes yeah. and their techniques alongside their results. And so you have a crisis, which is a crisis, not just in machine learning, but everywhere in science, a reproducibility crisis. Yeah. Where you're not giving other scientists the ability to try to reproduce the results that you got. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's that has gone on, like you said, before there was even machine learning used in science, yes. even with coding and simulations, people not posting their code. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have to admit, as a scientist myself, I'm terrible at it. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons is, is that up until just recently, there was no place to really do it well. Mm-hmm. Right. So journals wouldn't necessarily take your code. Um, so where would you post it? You could post it on your personal website, but what if you didn't have access to that kind of storage or if your server didn't allow that many information, people downloading these the codes or other restrictions that, you know, I can't think of off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think transparency and coding for reproducible results is critical. Uh, it should be part of the scientific process today in the review process. Uh, and you know, if you look at, for example, the um, medical sciences, they've had issues of reproducibility for a long time. Psychological sciences, mm-hmm. these kinds of things. Uh, there's, you can do a quick search on Google and see all kinds of issues of like high percentage of studies that aren't reproducible that were published in these journals. Right. And as we, as scientists, um, well, as we become, as science becomes bigger and bigger, more and more people involved in it, and there's more and more journals, and there's more and more um, open access journals that are, um, or, or, or for pay journals that are mm-hmm. um, basically for profit um, type uh, deals, predatory journals is usually what they call them, not all for profit journals are predatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it can become harder and harder to suss out what's good research and what is not. And mm-hmm. what results are good and what's not. We don't incentivize scientists to reproduce work. I was going to bring that up. I think that's a problem. It's a huge problem. Um, You are not going to get tenure as a scientist at many places, probably most places, if your body of work is checking other people's work. Right. You're not going to get the grant money for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's no incentive to do this. Yeah, how do we do you have any ideas about how you can incentivize something like that? Because there's the way I see it, 
there's all of the things you mentioned. You're not going to get grant money. You're not going to get a publication. You might not get tenure, etc. But also, you don't get the, you don't get like the 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 high. I'll call it yeah. the scientific yeah. high of finding something new. Right. So you know, this is like an interesting ethical dilemma in all of science, in that how much of the results we publish are non non reproducible, or not even not reproducible, but maybe not reproducible to the confidence level that they originally were published at. That sort of thing. You know, sure. we have to find a way to, to begin to answer that question, I think. I think the question that you're really asking is, how do we initiate a culture change? Mm-hmm. Okay. In a system that is extremely complex with no single governing body. So you can't go from up high and say, you're doing this now. Right. Because every university operates on its own. Mm-hmm. Every company operates on its own that employs scientists. Yeah. Granting agencies are independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to have to probably be a grassroots type of effort. Scientists taking up the charge and saying, we value reproducibility. Yes. And very slowly and very painfully convincing sort of the, the powers that be that this is worth this is worth funding. This is worth granting tenure for. Mm-hmm. This is worth doing. Right. Uh, and I don't know, maybe maybe it's the senior scientists, um, which I guess I'm starting to become one with my age, uh, that <laughs> after you know having tenure, mm-hmm. um, that need to push this. Right? Yeah, that that would be an interesting an interesting way to handle it is to to allow the younger scientists to build their careers, build their publications, build their, you know, chance to get tenure, and then once you've achieved that level, then you put some of the focus on trying to verify results. Um, in theory, right, you'd think like reproducibility should be something that's easy, especially when it comes to code, especially when right. it comes to computer code that is already written and all you have to do is run it. You have to run it with new data or, or um, you know, on new data, et cetera, or just somewhere else, maybe with different parameters and try to reproduce similar results. That seems like an easy thing to do. That's much easier in my head than like, say, reproducing biomedical research. Where right. You have to like get people to sign up and. And, and spend a lot of drugs money. and yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, who's going to fund the reproducibility study on that? Right. I mean, um, yeah, but even with computational stuff, uh, there, there are variables. Like a lot of these machine learning algorithms are dependent on random seeds, mm-hmm. right? They have random, they have random elements to these algorithms and, yeah. uh, people are asking questions now, how reproducible are machine learning results? Yes. Right. Yeah. That's a big, big problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the answer is, I don't know. Um, there are statistical analyses one can do, uh, to, to communicate that. But ultimately the reproducibility, it's one of those things that seems like it should be simple, mm-hmm. but it can have its own set of challenges that for, especially for a younger scientist is probably not worthwhile given our current incentive system. Yes, certainly not worthwhile. You know, like there's such a push to do new science when you're a young scientist. Um, if you do want a job, you do need to do new science. Um, right. So there's – I'm sa- it's safe to say that there is zero incentive. It's not just that there's very little incentive. There's zero incentive to try to do reproducibility studies unless you're so confident that someone was wrong about something and you have a counteracting idea. And so you want to prove theirs wrong while simultaneously proving yours right. That's like the only scenario in which that would could be even feasible. Um, but but I, you might even argue that there's a negative incentive 
because you're encouraged not to do that. Right. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. It'd so be it's a waste not even there's a zero yeah. payoff, right? Mm-hmm. It's that you're actually damaging, you're setting yourself back in your career by yes. not spending the time on the quote unquote new science. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that this machine learning boom will continue? Or do you think that some of these drawbacks will make companies start saying, let's hold off? Let's not hire 10,000 employees. Uh, I think it's going to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine it sputtering out. I mean, I've lived through several um, hot markets in the sciences. I remember seeing, for example, medical physics come online and people are like, oh, we're all going to do medical physics degrees because mm-hmm. that's like the big thing, right? Uh, lived through the dot-com bubble, right? Yeah. Um, I Certainly at some point, the market will get flooded with lots of data scientists and these needs will be, you know, probably largely met by the thing. But machine learning is not going anywhere. It's too profitable. Um, mm-hmm. It's too useful. Uh, it will, I suppose, take off until we start to see significant damage to our society. Yeah. Or to our people from it. Well, um, even then. And even we, we then. We love hurting ourselves, I think. That, Damage has to happen to the right group of people. Yes. Um, before it will be, I shouldn't say right, but a certain group of people before mm-hmm. it begins called back. Once it starts to affect the the profits of the wealthy, that's probably when it'll be addressed, looked at, addressed. Mm-hmm. That's a highly charged political statement, so I so I apologize for making such oh, a thing no. on your show. But I don't uh, think anyone would disagree. I, I would yeah, hope. I think, I would, yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah, I don't. I don't. It's it's one of those things where it's like, um. It's so ingrained into the capitalist culture of America that it's when you say it, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Nothing will change until the wealthiest people are feeling the financial burden. That makes sense. Like, I, I would never argue that that's not true. Um, but anyway. So, you know, there's estimates, for example, of um, three million truck drivers losing their jobs in the next X number of years, different different mm-hmm. um, sources will give you different, let's say 15 years, okay? Yeah. Just make up a number. Uh, automated trucks, they're going to happen. Yep. What What do we do with those 3 million people it's once they are no question. longer working? Yeah. Uh, and what we don't want them to, what we don't want to have happen to them is we don't want them to become too idle. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because then they get they get they get angry. They take their trucks. They drive up to state capitals. They might mm-hmm. have guns. And then all of a sudden you have a destabilization. Yes. Right. Now, I'm saying all truck drivers are violent gun toting, you know, <laughs> truck drivers. I'm just saying that um, historically, when people have been put in this position, uh, things like this have happened. Yes. And so what do we do? Do we retrain these people? Um, if so, what's the likelihood of them being retrainable? Can they be retrained for these jobs? Do they want to be retrained for these jobs? Again, just to quote um, Professor Harai's book, we're, one possibility is having a class of irrelevant people. Mm-hmm. People that can't get jobs because the jobs have been automated away. Yeah, They don't have the skill set. Mm-hmm. And not irrelevant in terms of... Um, their, their their individual value, but irrelevant into like their ability to get a job in the work in the economy, the workplace, yeah. mm-hmm. contribute to society in, in that specific way. Yes. And so what we that can't be a good thing. What do we do to prevent it? It's an excellent think machine, question. Machine learning is going to be maybe the thing that for once in human history gets us to ask that question. Gets us past the question how? 
gets us to ask that question. At, oh, gets ask, us to ask, ask the, the question. question. Okay. What do we do with like, people once? So confused. I got you. You know, in the yep. past, you know, you, like uh, my brother, when he gives talks about artificial intelligence, likes to talk about um, lamplighters. Mm-hmm. And that was a very honored profession back in the day. But when electric lights came in, you didn't need lamplighters because yeah. they just, they, you just flip the lights switch on, mm-hmm. right? Uh, most of those people were probably not turned into electricians. Right. Right through retraining. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the number of people, uh, that's very likely a much smaller percentage of the population that got affected by that technological shift than what will be affected by the upcoming automation shift. Yes. Which is actually not even upcoming. It is currently going on. Yes. Where estimates are between 40 and 50% of the jobs in the U.S. being automated away. Mm-hmm. Some estimates are as low as 30. It just depends on who you read, who you talk to. But the point is, there's going to be a large fraction of people right. that are going to lose their jobs because of this. Yeah, one of the more interesting um, – I there's two points in this that I'm interested in. One is, you know, we've been saying that this is coming for a while, this job loss and automation, and it has happened already. We've already had tons of people lose their jobs, but somehow the unemployment rate continues to decrease or at least stays stable. Um, outside of large recessions in the U.S. economy, we don't see people unemployed. And so an argument is that, well, yes, those jobs disappear, but people find other ways to make money, like selling things online, making videos, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the opposite stance that I'm really interested in is the idea of universal basic income, is the idea of of giving people the means to stay alive so that we can be proactive instead of reactive for one time in the history of the United States of America or maybe in the history of humanity. Um, so I'm, inter- I'm interested in both of those concepts and the concept that, um, yeah, while we're losing the jobs, that humans will shift into doing something else to make the means. Uh, but I'm also interested in providing the means and seeing how that system works. Because that is literally just a giant test. We don't know how mm-hmm. that'll work. It right. could back it could backfire and you have a bunch of people sitting at home on the couch. It could work great and all of a sudden you have local businesses opening up and mom and pop shops and people pursuing the things they want to pursue. And people are painting and people are making music and people are making YouTube videos and everything. So I'm interested in those competing ideas. Yeah. So when it comes to unemployment, one of the things, that, at least in the U.S., um, I, from what I understand, when it comes to unemployment numbers, uh, they count people who are seeking jobs. So if you're no longer yes. actually looking for a job and you're completely out of the job market, then you're not going to be – the fact that you're unemployed is not going to be reflected in that unemployment Correct. statistic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question is, and I don't know the answer to this, is how many people have just given up? Yes, that's true too. And and then also you know, it, the unemployment rate does not necessarily consider livability. So just because right. you have a job doesn't mean you're living um, very right. well and doesn't mean you're thriving or even surviving. Right. So, yeah, the unemployment rate statistic is meaningless. Um, but I guess the point is you don't have hordes of homeless people in every city. Some cities. That is true. You do. Yeah. 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 Some cities you do. Uh, and then the question with the universal basic income, it's something that I think is interesting. I think uh, I think we can model this till our faces turn blue and try to do predictive outcome, you know, predictive models to see mm-hmm. what's going to happen with this. But until it's, you know, tried on a larger scale, mm-hmm. I don't think we're really going to know. And truth is, I know they've been trying some stuff like this in Finland, but just because you get results in Finland doesn't mean those results are going to carry over in the U.S. or in Canada or in exactly. England, yeah. right, or anywhere else. Um, so with, with a complex system like the economy, sometimes as scary as it sounds, you just you got to try it. Yeah, you do. You do have to just try it. Yeah. Um, and I would one of the inter- interesting comparisons about Finland 
is that Northern European countries like Finland have some of the highest uh, life expectancies in the entire world. Um, and they're starting to beat out Japan. Yeah. And um, meanwhile, those same countries have some of the highest rates of drinking and smoking out of any countries in the world. And so there, there's this interesting um, circumstance that defeats your expectation. You would expect people that smoke and drink the most to die the earliest, but they're not. And a lot of a lot of psychologists are attributing this to the fact that those countries tend to be the happiest when they mm -hmm. analyze them. They're the happiest. And so what role does that play? You know, if you give a bunch of happy people, a bunch of motivated people an extra thousand dollars a month or whatever, will they spend it differently than a culture like America where you have a mental health crisis and everyone's so depressed? Uh, you know, and I, I would suspect that you do spend that money differently and you do spend the free time differently if you're very happy or if you're broken and sad and you are lost in your life i don't know i think those are excellent points yeah um you know and it could be ac access to healthcare. so yeah maybe they drink and smoke but because they have ex access to good healthcare mm -hmm. or easy ac easier access to healthcare, that that counterbalances those particular um features yep. I, you know i don't know yeah it's, neither do i but, but this is another place where machine learning can help us answer these questions it won't give us causation, mm -hmm. but it can help identify the correlation. Yes. And with that, I think we can wrap it up unless you have anything else you want to say or plug. I don't have anything to plug right now, unfortunately. Fair enough. Well, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Um, but thank you for listening, everyone. Dr. Cole, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you it. for having me on. Appreciate the conversation. Uh, and Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for making it to the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Let me know what you think. What about AI? Are they going to take you over? Is machine learning going to use your data to create a super intelligent thing that's going to conquer the earth? Or is it just a bunch of bullshit? What is it? I don't know. If you're on the YouTube, hit the like. Subscribe if you're not subscribed. Turn on notifications so every new episode, you know it's there. I don't have to tell you. If I don't have to tell you, that's less work for me. If it's less work for me, that means it's less work for you because you don't got to read the shit I post. And then we just, it's all, yeah, it's just good that way. It's better that way. If you're on Apple, if you have an iPhone, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, please. It helps more than I could possibly describe. I don't know why I have to keep saying it. I feel like you guys are my kids and you ain't listening. And daddy's telling you to rate and review the show and you ain't doing it. And that is going to cause a lot of problems between us where I'm going to have to slap you around if I see you. And you don't want me to slap you around if I see you because that's not what this should resort to. So go rate review the show on Apple Podcast before I have to sing a song all by myself because I am musically inclined to hit all the notes and sing lots of songs and this isn't very good. Alright, if you made it this far, guess what? You're a gold medalist. You're a gold, gold, gold medalist. Do I know how to speak after talking for an hour and a half to Dr. Cole? Nope. I forgot. But support the Patreon, the PayPal, everywhere. And I appreciate you. And I love you. And I'm glad you like science. And I like you. You like science. I like you. Does that mean we like science together? It does. Does that mean we're brethren and or sisters? Yes. Yes. <laughs>